It really is a powerful, beautiful retelling uh, of the gospel story through mainly images and illusions. But we said the first week that really Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And so that's how we've been approaching it. And tonight we're looking at a passage at Revelation 2. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is a passage that, like I knew this, uh, I knew Revelation 2 a little bit when I became a Christian and kind of started reading my Bible for the first time. And this idea that we're going to read about, we're getting to the letters to the churches where Jesus basically has given these specific messages to give to the seven churches in Asia. Seven, we know, we're going to learn as we continue this journey together that seven is always a significant number for wholeness. So we know that this is a message not just for these seven local churches in Asia, but also for the church all time. And so this is what we're doing uh, tonight. So Revelation 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, and then we're going to dive into what I want to talk about. So Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who ever comes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me pray for us, and I want to talk about this passage together tonight. Let's pray first. Jesus, we thank you that in this very moment, as we are praying to you, that you are very much uh, in our midst, that you have given us your spirit, uh, you have given us your word, you have made us a people and a fellowship. And Lord, I pray that as we look at what you had to say to the church at Ephesus, Lord, I pray that you would also minister deeply to us uh, through this passage tonight. Lord, we, uh, we've sang it uh, so much tonight. We confess that we are needy, that we are helpless, that we are sinners, that you are our only hope, that your work in our lives and your work in our hearts is our only hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show yourself beautiful to us tonight. Would you show yourself as a strong deliverer Would you show yourself as everything we need and more? And Lord, we pray these things uh, in your name. Amen. So I've shared this story with some of you guys before. But the night of my wedding rehearsal, I made this really foolish mistake where I decided, even though I'd never gone to the tanning bed before in my life, (laughs) that I was going to go the night, literally the day of my rehearsal dinner. And so I show up in Sumter, South Carolina, where we got married. I show up to this sketchy, so sketchy tanning bed near my house. Never been before. This older man is working the counter, which should have been my first red flag. Like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. This is probably some sort of money laundering scheme of some sort. Anyway, so he says, have you ever been to a tanning bed before? I said, nope, my first time. Kind of looking for some guidance. 
He just simply said, well, how much do you want to do? How much time? Five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 minutes. And I was like, oh, well, of course 15, because I'm trying to get 10. The whole goal of this thing was to try to get 10. We were going to Jamaica on my honeymoon. So I was like, well, let's go full out. You know, why not go full out? What's the harm? 15 minutes in the sun is nothing. 15. So I, I uh, go lay down in the tanning bed, and like I went, not to get too graphic, I went all out, plus I wore the little goggles. So I'm in, you know, like in the tanning bed feeling fine, uh, leave still feeling fine, go take a nap, wake up probably about 6 o'clock to head toward my rehearsal, look in the mirror and think, oh no. Uh, the way I've described it is I really did, I look like a raccoon and a lobster that had a baby because I was burnt deep red with little white circles. This is a true story. I show up to my rehearsal. My wife is coming from Columbia. She sees me. <laughs> she sees me and no exaggeration bursts into tears because she's like, you have ruined our wedding pictures. <laughs> Which, honestly, if you've been to my house, you will have noticed, if you've looked, all of our wedding pictures are in black and white. <laughs> because the ones in red, it is so clear that I am burnt. Um, well, I've been thinking about this because this is a passage where Jesus, he has really a lot of encouraging things to say to his people, but he has this one really hard, challenging word, and it's this, that you have lost your first love. The reason I was thinking about that tanning bed is I, I, I did that. I was thinking about the foolish things that I've done for love. Like I really did. The whole goal was to be tan for my wife to, to be, not beautiful, but to be as handsome as possible for my wife on our wedding night. And we do. If you've ever been in love or been in a, you know, a relationship like that, uh, you know that you, you're, when you're doing in that kind of place, you do foolish things. You do extravagant things. And Jesus is saying to us tonight, that's precisely the kind of relationship I want with you. One that is passionate, that is where you are madly in love with him and him with you. So the, the way I want to do it is three things that I think we get from this passage that I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about what Jesus wants. Second, I want to talk about why it's so hard. And then lastly, I want to talk about how we get there. So first, what Jesus wants. Second, why it's so hard. And then lastly, uh, how we get there. So first, I'm going to for a little bit about what Jesus wants. So I already said, Jesus commends them for many, many good things. They've persevered. They've confronted false teaching. They've had nothing to do with uh, some of the kind of um, false teaching that's spreading in the church. But he has this one thing he confronts them on, is that they've fallen out of love with him, that they've lost, they've forsaken their first love. And this is what I want you to see, that it's really, really possible to love good things, especially if you've been a Christian for very long. This is a, a drift in our relationship with Jesus that often happens, Right? We can love theology. We can love virtue. We can love the Bible and books about the Bible. We can love worship. We can love community. We can love so many good things, and yet it is possible to love all those things and to lose our first love, Jesus. The reason why we hopefully fell in love with those things in the first place. I've been thinking a lot about this passage like this. When I was growing up, my grandparents... Maybe you had grandparents like this. It was always really sad to me when I would go visit them and spend the night with them. They had the kind of relationship and the kind of marriage where they slept in different bedrooms. It always struck me as so strange because even as a kid, I could put together something being off there. 
that clearly at some point in their married life, they loved each other to the point where they got married. They were pass- at some point in their relationship, they were passionate enough about each other to get married, but then something started a, to set a drift in them to where they were sleeping in these separate bedrooms, barely able to communicate or have passion toward each other. And I want you to see that Jesus is saying what he wants from us is Jesus is not into that kind of a relationship with us. Jesus is not willing to sleep in a different bedroom. Jesus is not willing to give up the passion and the romance that brought us to him in the first place. I was thinking about like this. Uh, Jesus, on the one hand, isn't on Tinder. Like he's not looking for the casual hookup. On the other hand, Jesus is not willing to put up with the ritual, just like a a kind of passionless, duty-driven, dry, indifferent relationship. He is after our hearts, and he wants our relationship to be full of life and satisfaction and joy. Uh, If you're a Grey's Anatomy fan, we can say it like this, Jesus wants to be your person. If you're uh, a Jane Eyre fan, I think I have this right, Jesus wants to be your true and better Mr. Darcy. Uh, or if you're a greatest showman person, my family on Sunday went to see the greatest showman. I, I was kind of reluctant because I was like, musicals are not really my thing. Um, not like I'm not a manly guy. I mean, you've been around RF long enough to know I'm not a manly guy at all. But musicals, just there's a little bit too much happening. It was hilarious. Our whole family went, and my son, probably no less than 10 times, was like, Dad, please, is this over? Please, when is this over? So we, we did it. And you can imagine, like, my whole household now is just, you know, Greatest Showman songs are own. For, like, literally, I was trying to take a nap today, and my wife was, like, blaring it in the kitchen. And it's pretty catchy, I have to admit. But, you know, if you haven't seen it yet, spoiler alert, it's not going to ruin the movie for you. But the, the, the closing scene, right, where he makes that, he rides in the elephant back to charity, and it comes clear, like, he's basically saying, it's this extravagant gesture where he's saying, the whole reason we started this in the first place is because of, he's saying to his wife, Charity, we were madly in love and we did this together and it was all about our love. And Jesus is saying, this is the kind of relationship I want with my people. I want it to be full of passion and intimacy. I'm not willing to sleep in different bedrooms. And this is what he wants. Why is it so hard? This is where it gets a little, a little tricky. This is why this passage has been messing with me. Y'all, I've been a Christian for, I, got, I became a Christian right before I was 15. And I really did. When I became a Christian, Jesus was so real and so sweet and just beautiful to me. That's the only word, as a, even as a guy, that I can use. He was just, I was enraptured by this person who could love me and break into my life and forgive my sins. And then, you know, how many years in? 22 years in. It's easy to lose the passion. Why? I think it's really twofold. Here's the first. is that our hearts are determined to find rest and satisfaction in almost anything other than Jesus. This is part of what it means to be a sinner. Like when we think about sin in the terms of the, the Bible is really putting it in all the time. Like throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I am your husband. You are my bride. We want, I want a passionate relationship with you. And then he compares sin within that framework to adultery. Right? He says, basically, what sin is and does to us is it's like you're stepping out on me. You've replaced me. Your heart has gone toward another lover. That's why David, in this famous psalm after Bathsheba in 51, he has that strange line that's always, people point out, it's so strange, where he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. 
And you're like, no, like David, you, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What are you talking about? And what he's getting at is there was adultery behind his adultery. That he, to get to the place with Bathsheba that he got, he had to step out in his heart on God in the first place. Our hearts are determined to find rest and satisfaction in something or someone else. And yet, this is what, how our hearts were made. You know, Augustine, you know the famous line, uh, you know, that we are restless. Our hearts are restless until they come to find their true rest in God himself. But in the meantime, that, that means for us, we're going to be looking for something. Another way to say this is your heart has to be drawn in passion and drawn in love towards something. No one has put this better than Thomas Chalmers. He was a, an English Puritan, and he preached this powerful sermon and owned this idea. He, it was called the expulsive power of a new affection. And he was basically saying you can watch how the human heart works, that basically you can watch. Take, he gives the example of a young man, a young man being given in his teenage years to lust and moving toward anything to do with that. And then he says this, this, this subtle change happens where he kind of calms down, maybe gets married, but then his heart begins to go towards something else. It goes toward power. It goes toward money. And he makes this point that the human heart has to have, some, it has to have a lover. It has to be in bed with something. Here's the way he says it. I'll your hand out. It's long, but bear with me. He said, It is thus that the boy ceases at length to be the slave of his appetite, but it is because a manlier taste has now brought it into subordination, and that the youth ceases to idolize pleasure, but it is because the idol of wealth has become the stronger and gotten the ascendancy, and that even the love of money ceases to have the mastery over the heart of many a thriving citizen, but it is because it's drawn into the world of city polities. Another affection has been wrought into his moral system, and he is now lorded over by the love of power. And here's what he says. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having some one object or another, this is unconquerable. Its adhesion to that on which it has fastened the preference of its regards cannot willingly be overcome by the rending away of a simple separation. It can be done only by the application of something else to which it may feel the adhesion of a still stronger and more powerful preference, such as the grasping tendency of the human heart, that it must have something to lay hold of, and which, if rested away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. It may be dispossessed of one object or of any, but it cannot be desolated of all. The heart must have something to cling to, and never by its own voluntary consent will it so denude itself of its attachments that there shall not be one remaining object that can draw or solicit it. This is why, like, some of you have come to Carolina, and you've not been able to maybe explain the changes you've seen in your friends. What's happened? their heart has been drawn to a different object. Or maybe you've come to Carolina and you're like, I don't understand the changes that have happened in me. And it's because your heart has been drawn to maybe a different object than it was in high school. Um, So our hearts have to have something. They have to have some object. But then the second thing, the reason this is so hard, is our hearts are determined to make first loves out of almost anything or anyone other than Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of the garden. This is the story of all of human history. That our hearts find it difficult to find satisfaction and rest in Jesus. And so 
missing that piece, we look to and go to all kinds of other things. Another way to say it is we get in bed with all kinds of other lovers. Uh, we do this because we, we feel ugly, so we go after anything and everything that makes us feel beautiful. This is why we stay in relationships that we should never be in, because it has a power, right? Our heart has been drawn to this person that makes us feel lovable or beautiful. We feel naked, so we are drawn to anything and everything that makes us feel clothed and protected, right? We build up these resumes as a kind of protection so you don't see, our, you don't see my weakness, we feel rejected, so we go after anything and everything that will make us feel even just a little bit cool. I was thinking about this. I have so many stories I could tell you of the ways that my hearts have gone after other lovers. So many that I could choose from, truly, as a Christian. And the one that I think I want to choose you is, is I have this other Jesus. In my other Jesus, I've lied for my other Jesus. I have used people for my other Jesus. I have pretended to be something I'm not for my other Jesus. I have uh, been too afraid to disappoint people for my other Jesus. And the name of my other Jesus is approval. That so often in my heart, approval wins the day. I care so much. What's, I, like, you know, listen, part of me was like, you know, ready to get large group over because I had a day in which I felt rejected, that I wasn't enough for this certain, uh, for this certain part of my life. And I wrestled with it mentally all day. Why? Because Jesus' approval of me, if I'm being honest with you, is not enough. I need certain people's approval to feel okay with myself. We could talk about a lot. I mean, for, in my life, it's been a girlfriend that I remember in my heart saying, Jesus, you can touch anything in my life, but if you touch her, I'm out. And of course, Jesus <laughs> brought that thing in his grace to a crashing halt. Uh, it's been literally, I was thinking today, and when I was in your seat, uh, I did this thing where I joined a fraternity, and I was, I was, in high school, I cared nothing about my appearance. In college, I got so into it, such that I found this amazing book. You can still find it, and actually still is kind of amazing. It's called The Official Preppy Handbook. It was in the 80s, true story. In the 80s, it was perfect for like fraternity culture at the time, where, and it had lists of, here are the shoes you wear. Here are the pants that are acceptable. LL Bean, here are the L.L. Bean vests that are acceptable. Here are the kind of decorations. And I'm not even kidding you. If you had come to my apartment my junior year, I had decked that thing out according to the official preppy handbook. Why? Because I was desperate for some measure of feeling like I was cool. And my heart was in bed with another lover other than Jesus. And even though I knew Jesus, I had lost and forsaken my first love. What is it for you? What, what are the lovers that your heart right now are caught up in and prone to go after? This is the thing that, that you have to see is that basically in our idolatry is what the Bible calls it. We have substituted so many. We've tried to make a Jesus of so many things, right? We've tried desperately. And what we found like with approval, my other Jesus, that it always fails me. There are not enough people in the world to like me enough so that I feel loved and significant. And we could go down the list of all the different lovers that we pursue. So this is why it's hard. So, so how, can we, how can we get back to our first love? How can we get there? It's the last thing I want you to see. How can we get there? Well, the passage, Jesus gives his church in Ephesus two kind of actions, two movements, if you will, to get us back toward our first love, Jesus. Here's the first is to remember in other words, it's like when you go to a, a couple that's been married for a long time and you pull out the wedding album. 
it's just it's really fun. Like the wedding DVD. If you were, you were to watch my wedding DVD, it's clear that I was ner- too nervous to get in the center of the aisle for some reason, and I just did this with my lips the whole time, namely because I was so burnt from the tanning bed. But you remember what were the things that made you fall in love with Jesus in the first place? Where were the places where the gospel really came home for you? What were the things that you used to do, just out of pure love for Jesus? What were, what were the things that you did for him? What were the things you did with him? Remember the sweetness of what it was like when you first met Jesus and go back to those places. Go back to those places. And the second one he says is to repent. Part of why I call this whole sermon Repentance Revealed is I think he's saying something, Jesus is saying something to us that's really important about repentance. He's saying repentance is realizing on the one hand that all of the other lovers you are tempted to get in bed with are going to disappoint you. They are not going to satisfy you. Whatever those might have been or are right now in your life. And on the other hand, Jesus is the one who truly not just loves you and frees you and forgives you, but can truly satisfy you and can truly bring you the kind of life that you're looking for. But we're never going to do either of these things unless we, sit for, unless we see the love of Jesus. What I love about Revelation 2 is the Jesus that is saying these things, hard things to his church is the Jesus who has done two things in his love for his people. On the one hand, he's the Jesus who has been completely selfless, right? He's the Jesus who literally became ugly, that you and I might become beautiful. He's the Jesus who is stripped naked at the cross, that you and I might be clothed in his righteousness. He's the Jesus who was literally rejected to the point of crucifixion, that you and I might be brought in and chosen and loved and valued. Jesus could not have given more What more could Jesus have given to call you and me his own? What more could he have given to show you the depth of love he has for you? But then the the other part that's beautiful to me in Revelation 2 about his love is not only his selflessness, but Jesus is, is showing that he is relentless in his pursuit of you. Jesus is not going anywhere. Boyfriends and girlfriends and friends and grades and opportunities, they will all come and go. Jesus is the one who stands among the lampstands of his church, relentlessly pursuing you until the end. John is the same one who wrote that he loved his disciples in John 13 to the end. And if he's loved you to the end, not even the gates of hell themselves can prevail. And he is set on, this is what sometimes we don't like, he is set on in his relentlessness calling out your other lovers. One of the, the, the most loving things Jesus can do in your life right now is to expose to you tonight what your heart is prone to get in bed with. To, to show you the other idols and the other lovers and the other things you're trying to make into a Jesus are and to expose them, but at the same time to remind you of the gospel. That even though you are far worse, far worse than you think you are, At the same time, you are far more loved and cherished and valued and delighted in than you've ever ever dared to hope in anyone. And this is the way that Jesus loves us. Even though we have substituted many, many, many things for Jesus, here's what you have to see about Jesus, is that Jesus in love substituted himself for us.
And this is the Jesus who's speaking to us tonight. I want to close with this. Thinking about this idea of, of Jesus pursuing us as husband and us being the bride. Uh, I love one of my favorite spots in all of Columbia. You could actually visit it if you're interested. There's a, a grave uh, gravestone in the Elmwood Cemetery. And it was uh, the daughter of James Henley Thornwell. If you're a first preser, the, the Thornwell that the Thornwell building was named after or is named after. And it's a famous story out of her life. She was 20 years old. And she was uh, literally days away from her wedding. And days before, the week before her wedding, she got one of the most severe cases of typhoid fever that the doctor, when you read back through the life and letters, had ever seen. And so Thornwell, James Thornwell got back from a trip getting ready for the wedding, and there's his daughter Nanny, and she is on her deathbed. And she is, it is way worse than they thought. And they get to this place where they realize she is going to die. And this is where the night before her wedding, true story, and she is going to die. And here's what he writes about it. It's in your handout. He said, the next day I became alarmed and on Friday gave her to understand that her case was critical. And she was not at all disconcerted. She assured me that her peace was made with God. And that though she had many earthly ties, and some of them very tender, there was nothing that she loved in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing that she was not ready to sacrifice at his call. She called all the family to her bedside, united in prayer with them, and gave to each a parting benediction. The scene was sublime beyond description. To see a young girl, 20, elegant, accomplished and highly esteemed with the most flattering prospects in life just upon the eve of her marriage with one whom she devotedly loved resign all earthly hopes and schemes and joys with perfect composure and welcome death as the voice of one supremely loved was a spectacle that none who witnessed can ever forget what i love is if you were if you go to that gravestone it literally says her death was triumphant and glorious and she descended to the grave adorned as a bride to meet the bridegroom. She literally asked to be buried in her wedding gown. And she was. How did she, how did she do that? She was in touch with her first love. She knew, I love when he says that she was supremely loved by the only one whose love could ultimately satisfy her. And she went to the grave ready to meet the bridegroom. What right now is taking you away from that kind of love? What right now is blocking or your heart's getting caught up in the, the kind of beautiful, humble confidence of being loved in this way by Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I pray that you would wrestle with us in that question. I pray that you could help us if we belong to you to see the way, the way that you see us, 
to see and feel the way that you feel about us. Or to be honest, that so often seems to be the problem. It's so hard to see that or be in touch with that. And Lord, I pray for that. I pray that you would lavish your love in our hearts by your spirit tonight. And Lord, if we're here and we're kind of curious and we're not sure what we think about about you or Christianity, Lord, I pray that you would, would show the beauties of the gospel and this kind of selfless and relentless love that you have for your people. And would you make us a part of your people? Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Y'all stand and sing with us. Our closing hymn.